So are you a friend of God? All right. Um, you know, what's amazing is that that song was written not as a hit. Um, it was written by the musician that wrote it as, um, as a statement of gratitude for what God had done in his life. And um, as we take a look at this theme today of the power of discipleship, I guess I want to first say that what discipleship teaches us is that is a whole different understanding of power. Like the writer of that beautiful song that never intended it for it to be a hit, but really intended it to be a song of thankfulness, that's the kind of power that we talk about in the concept of discipleship. You see, the world defines power in a certain way. I think we're all pretty familiar with that. But Jesus defined power in a completely different way. As a matter of fact, what Jesus did was that he gave up power. And that was his power. Today, we have this fascinating story from Acts chapter 11. And let me just begin by saying even a step deeper into this understanding of power is that the power of discipleship is about the power of the gospel. There is no inherent power in discipleship. Discipleship is the tool that we use to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now there's plenty of bad news. Just turn your news on, right? Take a look at your newspapers. So if you're tired of bad news, let's take a focus and look at some good news here. The good news comes to us from Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us the gospel. How did he do that? By living amongst us as God's only son. He did it by ministering to people, bringing healing and new life and hope. And he did it by suffering and dying on the cross. And then on the third day, God rewarded him by raising him from the dead because of his faithfulness. This is where the power of discipleship comes from. It comes from Jesus, his death and resurrection. There are lots of movements out there that describe themselves as Christian. But if they're not grounded in Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, then they're just another movement. So when we talk about power, let me be clear. We're not talking about our power, about worldly power. We're talking about God's power. And God showed us his power, ultimately, significantly, in the life and death and resurrection of his son. So when we talk about the gospel, good news, that's power. It's power for the world. 
Now, the power of the gospel is seen quite clearly in this story. But it's also seen in the pre-story, the story about the first, um, well, we call them deacons now. They didn't, they didn't give them that title, but the, the apostles laid their hands on them like it was an ordination. And they designated Stephen and six others to a partic particular task. The reason we call them deacons is in the church, historically, deacons have been ministers of word and service. So pastors are ministers of word and sacrament. So it's just a little bit of a distinction. <clears throat> so the, the, these first seven gentlemen that are set apart by Peter in the book of Acts had a little bit of a history. So there are two groups of Jews that are living in Jerusalem at this time and throughout Judea. The, the one group is the Hebrew-speaking Jews. They're the ones who have lived there for years and years and years, know Hebrew and Aramaic, and those are the primary languages that they use. The second set of Jews in Jerusalem at this time and throughout Judea are what we call Hellenists. And that's a fancy word for Greek-speaking Jews. And so Stephen and the other six were Hellenists. Now, they're, they are Jewish. They're completely Jewish. But they just speak a different language. And so Stephen and the other six are an answer to prayer. Have you ever prayed for an answer? And these seven gentlemen are an answer to the prayers because of the early church, because there was a fight going on in the early church. I know it's hard to believe that there could ever be a church fight. But the, the fight was over the care of the widows. You see, before Social Security, we actually took care of our elderly, or we were supposed to. And so the elders, when they could no longer work, they would be cared for by their families. Families had that first responsibility. And if they didn't have any family left, then it was the church's responsibility to care for them. Back in the day, this comes out of the synagogue. The same thing happened in the, uh, the Jewish synagogue was that the parents, when they got old, the children were responsible for them. If there was no living children, then it was the synagogue that was responsible for their care. And so the fight was over this, was that some of the Greek-speaking Jewish elderly women, the widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and other resources. And so the Hellenistic Jews were getting upset because their women were being neglected. And so Peter and the other apostles make the decision to designate these seven Greek-speaking Jews to care for the women. And that begins the order of deacons, in a sense, in the early church. They are there to preach, 
and to serve those in the church who are in need. So, what got Stephen into trouble? Because I think you probably all know that Stephen doesn't make it through this story. Um, <laughs> Alex is surprised, but we'll work on we'll work on that with this week. <laughs> and and so um, with with Stephen, um, what got him into trouble um, was that he preached a sermon. Now. I've had people walk out of sermons. I've had people complain about sermons. But I don't know that I've ever been threatened with death because of a sermon. Now that could all change. <laughs> I'm a young man yet, right? <laughs> so um, so what, what happened was Stephen preached a sermon. And, um, and he's, I mean... He's going on. He starts out with Abraham and Sarah in this sermon. And, and then he goes on to Moses. I mean, then he tells, you know, about the patriarchs between Abraham and, and uh, Moses. Then he goes on and he talks about from Moses and then goes into uh, King David and the King Solomon. I mean, it, it's a long sermon. And they're listening. They're getting angry. They're getting frustrated with him. Because he keeps throwing these barbs. Um, and, but this, this is what really ticked them off. He says in verse 56. And he told them. Look. I see the heavens opened up. And the son of man is standing in the place of honor. At God's right hand. Now, does that sound like a disruptive statement? Um, I mean, he, he said some other things, that I, like you stubborn, stiff-necked people, you are all heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. That didn't tick him off. I mean, I'd be a little torqued if somebody preached that to me. But that didn't seem to bother them. What bothered them was that he said he saw the heavens opened up and he saw the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God, the Father. Well, let's go back to Matthew here a second. This is, uh, I believe this is towards the end. When uh, Jesus is on trial, and the high priest is asking him questions, and he says, "Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus?" Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, "I demand, in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God." And this was Jesus' reply: "You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man." seated in the place of power at God's right hand and the coming of the clouds of heaven. That's the statement that they took to the high priest and said, bring it to the whole Sanhedrin. Bring it to the council because we want to condemn Jesus to death. 
So what Stephen is getting in trouble over is that he's just reiterating the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, and that he is now, because of his ascension to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so this really gets them angry. And they do something quite rash. They take him to trial and convict him. No, they didn't even do that. They took him outside of the temple. There's a little dispute whether it's at the north gate or Damascus gate or the sheep's gate by the temple. Don't know which one, but we know that he was taken outside of the gate. And they stoned him to death. No trial. Now, it was illegal for Jews to kill even their own. And um, which is why they couldn't kill Jesus. Remember, they had to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Only the Romans could condemn somebody to death. And so the fact that they actually stoned Stephen to death is quite an alarming surprise. Historians have helped to fill in the gap. You see, Pontius Pilate, who had been there during the time of Jesus, he was withdrawn back to Rome, ordered to go back to Rome. And uh, Caesar was going to send a new um, designee to take over for Pontius Pilate, but he had not yet arrived. And so what the historians tell us is that we have a power vacuum. And so the leaders of the temple took advantage of that power vacuum and they put Stephen to death. Following Stephen's death in about 35 AD, the more radical members of this young Christian church in Jerusalem are persecuted. Um, You remember who held the the coats of the people that stoned Stephen to death? Saul was the one who held the coats. And and so most of the Greek-speaking believers at this time are scattered outside of Jerusalem. They go back to the places where they're from. And they're from all over the place. It's kind of like it's the same group of people that we heard about in the Pentecost story. Remember when the people start hearing the apostles speaking in different tongues? And, hey, that's my language. Well, that's my language. I'm a Cretan. <laughs> I'm a whatever, you know. And, and so what, what they're highlighting here is that most of the Greek-speaking Jews had left, been dispersed, kind of chased out of, of Jerusalem and out of Judea. Meanwhile, the 12 apostles, they remain in Jerusalem. The center of the church is still Jerusalem at this point. So the grace of God is observed, and there is rejoicing over it. Have you ever rejoiced over the grace of God? So that's what they were doing because that group of apostles in Jerusalem, they began to hear reports from Antioch, one of the cities that many of these Hellenistic Jews went to, they began to hear reports that the church was actually growing. 
while they were preaching to the Jews, and the Jews were eh, not very receptive. But uh, some people started preaching to the Greeks, and they are very receptive. And they started preaching more and more to the Greek-speaking people, Gentiles, not, not just the Jews now, but to the Gentiles as well. And the Gentiles are beginning to follow Jesus. And so the church in Jerusalem is growing with Jewish Christians, and the church in Antioch is growing with Gentile Christians. In Acts, that will lead us to another conflict, another church fight, but we'll get to that one later. So the grace of God is observed. Well, how was it observed? The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas. Do you remember the name Barnabas? He periodically appears in these stories, especially in Acts. And remember, his, uh, his name means the son of encouragement. And so Barnabas is an encourager. And he has been brought in to encourage uh, the church in Antioch to kind of explore what's happening there. But before that, he was brought in, after Saul's road to Damascus experience, he was brought in to encourage Saul. And that's why, at this point, when he needs a teacher, what better teacher is there than Saul? Saul is up in Tarsus in his hometown. So he calls for Saul and says, come, come down here. we got a lot of young, new Christians. We need your help. Come help me teach them. And so they're... They're instructing these Christians in discipleship. Teaching them how to be a follower of Jesus. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The spiritual heirs of Stephen, the martyr, are still steadfast about their purpose. I mean, if someone who has been important to you and your leadership, if that leader above you has died a violent death, are you going to think twice about continuing? Hey, we're human. Come on. Yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to think twice about, do we really want to do this? I mean, it happened to Jesus. Now it's happened to Stephen. Could it happen to me? Do I really want to do this? But they did. They did want to do it, and they continue to do that. What was interesting is that the early church's response was not vengeance. It was not to fight back, which would have been some of our response. Instead, the early church's response was to point to the power of the good news by healing, preaching, and teaching, casting out demons, bringing new life. In response to these persecuted Christians, in order for them to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus, they didn't fight back. Instead, they talked back. They talked back about Jesus. They didn't fight back. They shared the story of Jesus. And people began to listen and to respond to that story. You see, their devotion to Jesus is noticed and the way they abide and remain in the Lord Jesus is noticed. They're secure in their identity. They know that they are daughters and sons of God. 
They are children of God. What did, what did we respond to Alex with this morning? We are children of God. Are you a child of God? Say it. All right. You see, they were so secure about who they were that whether they lived or whether they died was not really very important. What was important was that they had a God who loved them, who redeemed them, who accepted them, who cared for them, who guided them, who would walk with them through anything. That is what they were concerned about. I have a God who loves me. And because of that identity, they had a newfound authority, an authority that came from God. Because the church was growing, the development of new disciples became imperative. Now believe it or not, New Covenant, once again, is going against the grain. We are actually seeing some growth this year from a year ago. And you, if you've been worshiping, you maybe have noticed that more and more chairs are getting filled up. And so you've heard Alex and you've heard me talking about discipleship. And the reason we're talking about discipleship is because whenever there is church growth, there needs to be an enhanced focus on discipleship. Otherwise, the growth becomes kind of chaotic, unclear, and unfocused. And what we have learned from the early church, what I have learned from the early church, especially this last 10 years, is the importance of discipleship for a church to be able to grow in a healthy manner. That's what the early church did in the midst of its growth. They brought Paul down from Tarsus to teach them about discipleship. And that's what we need to be doing as a church. So, <clears throat> how do we define this power of discipleship. Well, let me begin by saying that today most of the nation is talking about time. I mean, it doesn't affect us because our clocks don't change unless you're up on the Navajo Reservation. But the rest of the world, pretty much, or at least the rest of the nation, changes time. They're all springing ahead. And then, I don't know if you saw in the newspaper yesterday or today, there's all kinds of articles about, you know, well, it's healthy to spring ahead. And then the next article is, well, it's very unhealthy to spring ahead. And, and so everybody's talking about time. And one of the fascinating things about time is that we tried to simplify it in the English language. And we kind of messed it up. If you go back to the ancient Greek civilizations, the Greek language, they had two different words for time. And it was important to have two different words for time because one was chronos, which is chronological time, when you chronicle your history, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And then we have kairos time, 
Kairos time is a time that stands still. And when we talk about discipleship, discipleship really begins with Kairos time. It's when we, we call it deep time. This is the time we're talking about when the world seems to stop. And we are able to kind of assess what's going on around us. A lot of rhetoricians, uh, philosophers, they like to distinguish between these times by saying that Kronos time is a quantitative time. Kairos time is a qualitative time. Here's the, the ancient's definition of Kairos. It is a passing instant with an opening. An opening appears which must be driven through with force for success is to be achieved. And the image that they used for this was someone that was shooting an arrow and it would be the time that the arrow actually penetrated through the target. If you shot arrows like I did when I went to the YMCA camp, they would hit the target and fall down on the ground. <laughs> that was not a Kairos moment. The Kairos moment is when it succeeds by going through the target and sticking. You see, a Kairos moment is a moment for us to be able to kind of look at our lives and to assess what's going on here. What is God trying to tell me about my life here? And what am I going to do about it? You see, a Kairos moment can make a dramatic change in the life of a person. And if you really want to know what the power of discipleship is, it begins with Kairos. It begins with you. It begins with me. Because it's a moment when we have to take a look at ourselves where God is trying to get our attention, get us refocused. And as we have that moment of refocus, we begin to realize that something is not in sync with the rest of my life, with God. And I need to make that adjustment. I need to make that change. I mean, if I don't make the adjustment, I'm going to keep hitting the ground with my arrow. But when I make the adjustment, I'll succeed with the arrow penetrating through the target as was intended. Kairos moments signify an opportune time for action, for change. Biblically, we might even refer to this as a form of repentance. But think about what Jesus said time and time again, Kronos times. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. 
I don't know that he was telling us to do that once. I mean, you all may be way better Christians than I am. But I, because I, I need to repent every day, <laughs> multiple times a day. But, you know, if, if you're good, hey, you know, teach the rest of us. But if you are like me, then repentance is not a bad thing. It's turning a new direction. Andy told us a few weeks ago, it's making a U-turn. And so where do we need to make an adjustment? Where do we make to, need to make a U-turn? When we do that, that's the power of discipleship. Like Royce is trying to show us here. <laughs> the power to act, the power to change, truly comes from God because it is God's power. The power of discipleship, this gift from God, begins when we take the time to listen and to grow through those Kairos moments. When we do that, that frees us up to be the people of God in powerful ways. I've been reading some different histories of awakenings and revivals. I don't know if you heard about the Asbury Revival. But um, so I've been doing some reading, going back to my history books. And, uh, you know, one of the unique characteristics about awakenings and, and revivals is that they began with repentance and then with prayer. So the revival was never the intent. You see, the intent was to become more accountable as a community of faith. And then as people became more accountable to one another in the community of faith, they began to desire the need to pray together more. And then as they prayed more, things happened. Mission developed. People's lives were changed. Some of you have been using the daily text with us, uh, this little devotional. It comes to us from the Moravian Church, which is an offshoot of the Lutheran Church. It was the Lutheran Church in Moravia. And the Moravian Church had its birth about 300 years ago um, when a pietist named Nicholas von Zinzendorf who was in his early 20s at the time. His parents had died. He was the only heir left of this big estate. And he turned the estate into a refuge for Christians who were being persecuted around the world. Now, the first five years, it says, that there was a lot of infighting, a lot of disagreements, different expectations. But one night... Nicholas von Zinsendorf, who was not an ordained pastor, preached a sermon that brought everybody to their knees. And people stayed around for hours confessing to one another. I'm sorry I misrepresented you. I'm sorry I have um, 
uh, said terrible things about you. I'm sorry that I have not forgiven you. I mean, it just went around and around and around that little church. And from there, they began to pray. And it was a large enough community that they could populate a prayer room for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as that awakening happened in that little community, those Christians who had come there for refuge, who were fighting with one another, they started feeling called to go back to their homes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that little church on that little estate in little known land called Moravia became the largest mission center in the world. They sent missionaries all over the world for the next 100 years. Now that's an awakening. That's a revival. But it happened out of discord when the good news, the power of discipleship, was preached to them in a way that drove them to their knees. So that's where we need to begin, church, is on our knees, receiving the power of discipleship, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that through our confessions, through our prayers, we can allow ourselves to be used by God to make a difference in this community, in this school, in these neighborhoods. That's our call. And that's the power of discipleship. Not the power that the world speaks of, but the power that Jesus and people like Stephen showed us. Let's do that power, church. Amen?